So this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be taking a look at verses 17 to 21. And if you don't have a Bible, just feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one. So Philippians 3, uh, 17 to 21. Just kind of a recap of what we looked, what Pastor Tyson talked about last week. We saw that it's easy to be a spectator Christian and let others do the work of the gospel, to sit back and be what we would call an armchair quarterback, watching others uh, play the game, but being content to stay on the sidelines. And that passage last week showed that that's not the mentality that we can have. We've been all called to get in the game like that athlete and participate. There's no time to sit back and take it easy. Paul uses this athletic imagery, and so like marathon runners, we're called to train through the disciplines of the word, prayer, and fellowship so that we can press on without quitting. We saw that Paul reminded us of the right goal to have, and we know in in today's world, phrases like goal setting or having a vision are seen as requirements for leaders, but Paul gives the right kind of goal to have not prosperity or climbing the ladder of success or achieving the American dream, but instead pursuing the ultimate eternal prize, Jesus Christ himself, not merely heaven or a life without sorrow. And I don't need to tell you that being an athlete or exercising can hurt. Our muscles ache, there's pain, it's hard work, but the glory that comes with the prize will far outweigh the current pain and struggles. So whatever cost to us, whatever pain, whatever challenges, the the prize will be worth it. So today we will see uh, that Paul continues to pick up on this theme to run with encouragement, to run with perseverance. So if you have your Bibles, let's uh, stand if you can, and we'll read from Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21. So there Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with their minds set on on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You may be seated. Let's pray for the Lord's strength and grace today in this text. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you celebrating the fathers today. We, again, express our appreciation and gratitude for our own earthly fathers, for the examples that they have set And now as we come to this passage today, Lord, we are thankful for other godly people who have gone before us, who have set examples that we can follow and imitate. We pray likewise that we could do the same. We're thankful for you, Lord Jesus, and the pattern that you have set. So please give us the grace and strength to follow this pattern and pursue you closely. In your name we pray, amen. So it seems that no matter the time period or location uh, or just wherever we find ourselves at, there are always role models and heroes and examples to follow. So it seems like in any culture, whatever the time is, there's always people we're looking up to. 
right? Uh, at some point, even in your own life, you probably had heroes or people that you wanted to be like. It could have been imaginary people like Superman or Batman or uh, Luke Skywalker or Pokemon. It could be real people, um, perhaps athletes. Maybe it was Larry Bird or Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Uh, it could be in the entertainment field, uh, music such as the Beatles or Rolling Stones or Taylor Swift. So role models and heroes certainly have a significant impact in our culture today. Um, take someone like Taylor Swift, for example. I was just blown away by how much her ticket prices run. I don't know if, if you've checked out ticket prices of, of her tour lately, but uh, I mean, the average is $1,000 all the way up to $20,000. I mean, it's said that um, the economic impact her, her current tour is supposed to generate is the equivalent of $5 billion. That's greater than the gross domestic product of 50 countries. And she's not doing too bad herself either. She takes in like 10 million a, a show. So you don't have to feel sorry for her. So role models and heroes are all part of our lives. And I'm sure we could think of many negative examples of that, but there's certainly a place for positive examples as well. So even, even in your Christian life, I'm sure that you can think of people along the way who were good role models, good examples for you, and people that you wish you could be more like. So many, if not all of us, learned to pray or to study the Bible or some part of the spiritual disciplines by the example of other people. And so it could be tempting for us to react against role models or heroes and try to do the Christian life ourselves. But really our text today shows that that's not the way that God designed it. Other godly people have a very important place in our lives. So the main point that we'll see today is this, that our spiritual growth involves imitating other godly people who are pursuing the goal of the resurrected life with Christ. So our spiritual lives, our spiritual growth involves imitating other godly people who are likewise pursuing the goal of the resurrected life with Christ. So there's two points that really flow from today's text, the imitation and the invitation. The imitation and the invitation. So the imitation in terms of living out your heavenly citizenship by focusing on the Christ pattern. And then the invitation. Look to Jesus' return and transforming power to give you hope in your present struggles. So we'll talk about those one at a time here. But let's start with the imitation first. So in verse 17, Paul urges the Philippians to join him in imitating himself and others who walk after the Christ pattern. Now, it may strike you as somewhat odd that Paul would uh, call the Philippians to imitate him. That, that may sound a little strange, like, isn't that prideful to want somebody to imitate us? Uh, we might be a little uncomfortable with that. But upon closer inspection, we see that imitation is something that we already naturally do, and that happens all over the place. How, for example, does your child learn to walk or to eat or to read a book or, or those other things by imitating and mimicking you? We learn about all the goofy patterns and habits that we might have by the way our children imitate us. Some are not so goofy, and, and so I want to be careful with this, uh, but, 
I noticed, for example, that my children, um, some of them walked on the toes of their feet, like, like on the, uh, the fronts of their feet instead of the back. And I was like, why do they walk like that? And then I realized, oh, that's how my wife walks. And <laughs> then uh, I noticed um, kind of the way they hug, they, they do it, you know, in a, in a particular way. And I thought, why do they do that? Oh, well, that's the way I do it. So you, you kind of learn about yourself through the way your children imitate you. Our culture has all kinds of forms of imitation as well. So teachers learn in part by student teaching, right? They, they sit in a class, they observe other teachers, and they practice. They imitate them. A lot of the skilled trades involve some form of apprenticeship where you're assigned to a mentor and you learn the trade through the example of that person. Uh, we know that many things in life are just better taught by observation. You can't learn some of these things by just reading a book or listening to a lecture. So imitation is, is cr incredibly helpful just in our natural growth. And the same thing was true in Paul's world. Imitation was very common. So philosophers and teachers had disciples who would follow them and mimic them. They would imitate them. Jewish rabbis had disciples who would imitate their teachings and examples. So the Philippians would not have viewed Paul's charge here to imitate him as something strange or out of the norm. Like, what is Paul doing? Why is he telling us to do that? They would have seen, oh yeah, this is a very common practice right here. They knew that imitation was an essential way through which learning takes place. And in addition, the church in Philippi was not the only church in which Paul encouraged and called believers to imitate him. He does this frequently uh, throughout the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians, like to the Corinthians, for example, he says this in chapter 4, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Later in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says again, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So it's really hard to get more clear, uh, clearer than that than what Paul is saying there. Be imitators of me. But he says it to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3. He speaks twice of imitating him. Once in verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And then again in verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you an example to imitate. He tells this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.10. Paul reminds him of his example. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my joy, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. So Paul there is telling them to imitate his practices, but also his persecution. And then finally in uh, Hebrews uh, verse 7, um, he says, Remember your leaders, chapter 13, 7, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now you may still have some questions with this, like is Paul the only one that can urge people to imitate and follow him? Uh, what do we do if Paul's not here today? Or isn't it arrogant to want other people to imitate us? Or what does this imitation mean? I mean, are we supposed to like drink the same coffee they do and wear the same clothes they do so we look like little minions or little clones of each other? Is that this, what he's mean by, by imitation? 
Well, I think it's important as we begin to know that Paul does not hold himself out as the only or even the ultimate example to imitate. If, if he did that, then we could be concerned about pride, but he doesn't. He includes other role models. So he says those, he mentions those in, in verse 17 as well. So he's talking about other godly people who have their focus on the Christ pattern. Paul has already talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus as, as models, as godly men to follow. And as we saw last week, Paul does not consider himself as fully arrived. He's making no claims for perfection. So Paul is simply using a pattern of imitation that was common in the world that he lived in, as well as in the Old Testament. It's this teacher-disciple relational model that was used as a primary way of teaching. So there's nothing prideful about Paul's call to imitate him. Paul wasn't asking the Philippians to dress like he did or listen to the same exact style of music he did or eat the same food as he did. That's not the imitation he was talking about. He was not trying to control or suppress the Philippians. And the imitation that he desired was for the whole church, not just for a select few people in the church, not for those EG, EGR folks, those extra grace required folks. No, no, Paul was calling the whole church to imitate him. So he wanted all the Philippians to, say, to have the same Christ-like attitudes and practices that he had. He wanted them to live out their faith in Christ alone for salvation, not by works, but to pursue righteousness in Christ and not by human efforts. He wanted them to mimic the way he stood firm in temptation and in the face of suffering and persecution and the way he resisted false teachers and the sinful living of the Roman world. He wanted them to follow him in living by the power of Christ instead of self. So Paul wanted this imitation not for selfish reasons, not so that he could stand out as the, the source of attention, but so the Philippians knew what living the cross-centered life actually looked like. Paul wanted them to have the same attitudes of joy, love, compassion, courage, contentment, and concern for others that he had. He longed for the Philippians to copy his responses when they were wronged, when they were falsely accused or sinned against. He couldn't wait to see them put to death sinful practices and attitudes of selfish ambition or envy or conceit or fame or complaining or conflict that he had been doing. He desired deeply for them to, to, to have the same attitudes for the lost, that same heart for the lost, to engage in the partnership of the gospel and hold forth the word of life. And as we will see a little bit later in these verses, Paul longed that they would share in the same hope that he had for the coming resurrection and transformation of the bodies, and that in the meantime, they would persevere with deep confidence that God would secure them to the end. So imitation is no light matter. Therefore, Paul tells the Philippians to keep their eyes on other believers, other godly people who do the same thing. Keeping your eyes on is another way of saying, pay close attention to. Pay close attention to these particular kinds of role models. The role models that seek Jesus to do what Jesus is doing, not the athletes or the politicians or the philosophers that are so often the ones we gravitate towards. 
So all of Paul's urgings for imitation flow from his desire to imitate Christ. Again, Paul does not place himself as the supreme example, but rather Jesus, as we saw back in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. So Paul and others who imitate Christ function as visible examples of what it looks like in real life. So by presenting himself and other godly people as examples to imitate, Paul helps the Philippians see who they should be like. He shows them as well who they should not be like. But before we get to that, let's just look at a few implications of this idea of imitation. So a few aspects stand out here. So first, while we don't have Paul in person to imitate, Paul helps the Philippians and us see who we should be like. So we can still learn from Paul's example what it looks like to stand well and respond well in the face of suffering or persecution or hard times that can help us in the midst of our struggles and and suffering. Secondly, one one of God's good gifts to his people is godly examples. So just take a moment and think about who may be in your life has God put along the way as a godly example? I'm sure here, even in this congregation, people will, will rise. One particular person in my life was a man named Dave. He had his peculiar habits, but he just had such a heart for evangelism. And he let me tag along with him and uh, just go with him and see what it was like for him to share the gospel. And, and that spirit was so courageous and so contagious. So I'm sure there's people in your life that have functioned as very godly examples, and as you recognize them, celebrate that. Thank God for them. And on the flip side of that, it's going to be difficult to grow in Christ-likeness apart from having godly examples. So if you don't have godly examples in your life, I would really encourage you to think about how to do that, how to, how to look for other godly examples. So if you notice from the text here, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to imitate and follow. And it can be really easy to expect other people to do the work. But Paul really says, look, we all have a role to play on this. So just as encouragement, reach out, seek for godly examples to imitate and follow. Fourth, when someone models the Christ pattern well, we notice less of them and more of Christ. So even though you are imitating them, you're really seeing less of them and and more of Christ. And how is this possible? Because they are following the Christ pattern, which is servanthood. It's not about self, but about Jesus. And then fifth, ordinary Christians play an extraordinary role. So you don't have to be some kind of amazing Christian or have some kind of super incredible gift or talent for God to use you. If you model the Christ pattern, the Lord will use you in the spiritual growth of many people. Now that we've been talking about the imitation that we should have, let's look at the imitation that we shouldn't have. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul says this, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So Paul is pointing out a threat to the Philippians 
This is no light threat. This is a very significant trouble that the Philippians are facing right here. He's saying, avoid these people. He's already talked about people we should mimic, but now he's saying there's a particular kind of people that we should not mimic. And he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. So notice this was not the first time Paul has warned the Philippians to be aware of them, to avoid them. He says he's done this before. In fact, in his own words, he says, I've often done this. So we really see the intensity of Paul's statement right here. Many times, he says, he has warned them of these enemies. In fact, he's done this to the point of shedding tears. Now, that can raise a good question. Why is Paul weeping here? He could be weeping for his concern for these enemies uh, of the cross. But I think what Paul is weeping for is that he's weeping because he is very concerned for the people he loves, the Philippians. He He does not want any spiritual harm to come to them. So if I were to ask you, what is Paul like? What could you tell me about his character, his nature? I'm sure that it would be easy for many of us. Uh, we probably have this idea of Paul to, to think of him as the, the truth teller, the, the one who's really cracking down on things, holding the line. But this text today shows a very, very important side of Paul's nature. It, it shows that he's a caring person. He, he's a true pastor. Notice this, he weeps for his people. So Paul has such a deep love when he thinks of the dangers the Philippians are facing that he weeps for them. So I mean, just imagine this, Paul, who has been through so much, probably in this prison cell, chained to these soldiers, is now weeping. And maybe the guys are looking at him like, what, what's going on here? Why, why are you crying? And they hear that he loves his people so much that he's weeping for them. And that really is the essence of a true pastor, to love and feed the sheep. One can do that while remaining committed to gospel truths. No question about that, because Paul does that in refusing to compromise. But one thing is clear, one cannot shepherd the flock well without a deep love and concern for souls, even to the point of shedding tears. Now, what do we make about these enemies of the cross of Christ? As we've said, Paul says these, these hard words about them, but, but with tears. Nowhere in the Bible are Christians called enemies of the cross. So we know that Paul is referring to unbelievers or even those who have turned away from, the, from their faith, uh, those who have apostatized and are now opposing Christ. So these people that he's talking about would include false teachers, uh, apostates, even pagan opponents of the church, maybe political authorities, and ultimately anyone who refuses this call of the cross to die to self and follow Christ. So the cross stands as the barrier between the enemies of God and God. The cross used in the New Testament to represent the sacrificial death of Christ for sinners is the stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. The cross is the supreme example and act of Christ's selfless servanthood and the love of God. So as you know, the irony and the foolishness of the cross lies in the message that humanity has been set free from the law, from God's wrath, from their guilt, and sin by the horrific death of Christ, which brings salvation. It seems very foolish to the world that a nameless Jew with no notoriety or importance 
was crucified by Roman authorities is really the Lord over all the universe. So anyone who opposes this message of salvation and the pattern of life that the cross demands is an enemy of the cross. I grew up in a church where this phrase, friends of the truth, was often used. And that could be true if it's talking about someone who is a Christian, maybe just not a member of the church, but it's certainly not true if that person is not a believer. Okay, someone who is not a believer is not a friend of the truth. They are an enemy of the cross of Christ. So Paul gives several characteristics as to what these enemies are like. First, notice that their end result is destruction. So their final outcome is eternal destruction, not simply death. One day God will bring judgment and ongoing eternal destruction on those who do not obey the gospel. Secondly, he says their God is their stomach. So this doesn't necessarily mean they're just a bunch of gluttons who have hit the Bob Evans line a few too many times. Uh, What he means here is that their functional God is their bodily desires expressed perhaps through drinking, sexual sin, or any kind of bodily lust. So their their bodily desires are their functional God. Third, they glory in their shame. In other words, they find glory in what is shameful. They find glory in doing shameful things, but what will happen to them is they will experience eternal shame. The irony can't be missed. So what the culture celebrates and promotes as good and virtuous, which is sin in God's sight, will turn into shame that will last eternally. Fourth, their their minds are set on earthly things. Earthly things would include sinful practices, such as the works of the flesh that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, evil desires, greed, covetousness, idolatry. So the earthly mindset refuses to acknowledge Christ as Lord and yield to Him and adopt the God-given values and attitudes that reflect the Christ pattern. So what do we learn about these enemies of the cross? Well, I believe a big theme that sticks out is this refusal to follow the Christ pattern. So Paul wants the Philippians to avoid mimicking these enemies of the cross. So we must be careful with the people that we hold up and follow as heroes. If they are not following the Christ pattern, they can lead us into trouble. So Paul then moves from the imitation to the invitation. So our second point is the the invitation. Look, Look to Jesus' return and transforming power to give you hope in your present struggles. So Jesus is inviting us in to his hope, to, uh, to, to look to him for hope in our present struggles. So verses 20 and 21 form a contrast between the enemies of the cross that we have just discussed and the believers. So instead of living for self and doing whatever makes the body feel good, believers have a heavenly focus and anticipation. So this invitation connects back to what was talked about last week. It's an invitation to get off the bench, to get into the game. It's an invitation to live out our heavenly citizenship. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells them there to live as worthy heavenly citizens. And again here, Paul picks up that theme, uh, live as heavenly citizens in the midst of our present struggles. Remember that our true home is in heaven, not on this earth. Do you find it challenging 
to live in a world that is constantly bombarding you and making you, making you feel as if you don't belong here, always questioning and challenging your allegiance to Jesus Christ and bombarding you with worldly thinking. Some of you perhaps have watched uh, that uh, series on the Duggars, the shiny, happy people. And one of the themes that stuck out to me, not that there wasn't a lot of problems in terms of the Duggars, but this subtle attack on, quote, fundamentalists. And where they went with that was, uh, if you grew up in a Christian home that taught godly virtues and values that had a commitment to Jesus Christ, you were spiritually abused. So make no mistake, this is, this is what's coming to our culture, right? This whole idea, if you follow Jesus, if, if you teach your children that, you're some kind of radical fundamentalist, and uh, it's not surprising then that at some point we'll probably even have children who think, have been spiritually abused because I grew up in this kind of a home. But we don't want to let that threat stop us from following the Lord, right? That's not what Paul wants either. So Paul knows that our allegiance to Christ often puts us in opposition to this world. So what will help us live here without despairing or compromising? Well, the answer is remembering that we have a heavenly citizenship and we can press forward in the hope of Christ's return and transforming power. So Paul, the pastor, comforts the Philippians by pointing them to the eternal. He says, look not to Rome or even to Jerusalem for your hope, but to heaven. The glory of heaven will far outweigh any present day struggles and pain. But not only should the Philippians look at their heavenly citizenship for encouragement, but even more so to Christ, whom they are awaiting. If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul has expounded on the first coming of Christ, where Christ left his glory in heaven to take on humanity. The first coming of Christ was one in humility, nothing flashy or exciting, limited to a particular geographic area. But his second coming will be universal and triumphal, with the whole world knowing that he is king. So these words bring intense comfort to the Philippians, knowing that their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be returning one day and will bring a glorious transformation. There are no other real saviors. No other gods or emperor can ultimately deliver the people. It's only Christ himself. No one or nothing else can hold in their hands human history and the universe. So as Paul sits in jail, waiting to see what the future will bring, the fact that Jesus is his Savior, is his Lord, his only saving hope, and that brings him intense comfort. And for the Philippians who are facing persecution and opposition from all kinds of sides and angles and foes, this focus on their Savior and the power that he brings to see them through brings comfort. So how much comfort do these four words bring you? I would perhaps argue that they're perhaps the four most important words in the Bible, if we had to pick four. Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. They can bring you more powerful protection than the American army, deeper riches than Fort Knox, more joy than a million Milky Ways, stronger strength than a nuclear bomb, and more powerful promises than any politician. So the action that Paul wants to see from these words is an intense waiting, an eager waiting, a longing. So Paul has such a, a deep love uh, for the Philippians there. Do you, do you remember the longing and waiting that you had when 
Maybe it was the last few days before your wedding. You just couldn't wait for that day to arrive. Or maybe for some of you who are expecting, uh, just, just waiting for that, for that baby to come, how you couldn't wait. Or maybe you've lived a distance from family and those times when they would visit or when you would visit, you just had such a longing in you for, to see that. So we should have an even greater longing for the return of Jesus Christ to make all things right. So in verse 21, Paul then moves from the return of Christ to the transforming power of Christ. He is again inviting believers to enter into that hope and anticipation for what Jesus will do. So the who in verse 21 is Jesus, who will transform believers at his return. Not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but he is also the transformer. He will transform us, a real physical transformation so that we will be like Christ. Now, if you think back to chapter 2, Jesus was transformed into humanity. Now here, humanity takes the form of Christ. And I think that many people perhaps fall into what we call a Christian Gnosticism. It's this idea that our physical bodies don't matter. So they emphasize the spiritual and they diminish the physical. A popular belief is that we are like these souls uh, with this temporary body. But but that's not true. The, The body is not some kind of prison for the soul. The goal is not to escape the body and to be the spiritual being floating around in the clouds somewhere. We are both body and soul. So when Paul refers to our lowly bodies, he's not saying that our bodies are evil or worthless. They've been affected by sin, and as a result, we get sick and die. But just as Christ received a glorified body, so likewise will we one day. Our new bodies will be immortal and eternal, not subject to decay or breaking down. We will have permanent health and unlimited energy. Now, as a side note, I think that we'll be able to drive the golf ball 400 yards, but I'm not, not sure that we'll make a hole in one every time. Probably no sand traps in heaven, certainly no cursing in heaven, but I don't know about holes in one in every shot, so maybe something to look forward to. But that's a different discussion. Now, can you imagine this glorified body that awaits us? Farewell pain, goodbye death, so long suffering, never see you again sin, This is the ultimate transformation, to be renewed as a whole person, including our physical bodies. Rather than having a body that suffers and dies, we will have bodies that are like Christ's resurrected body. So Paul gives the Philippians this hope so they will continue to persevere and run in the race and and not give in to the threats and opposition that they face. We don't know everything there is to know about our transformation body. We know it will have some kind of continuity with our current body so that people will be able to recognize each other. And we will be like Jesus in many ways, but we will be different from him in other ways. Only Jesus is in the form of God and has been exalted to the highest place. Only Jesus is, only, is worthy of all glory and honor. Only Jesus will redeem his creation and bring all things under subjection. Only Jesus is the hope of all grace, strength, and salvation. Only Jesus is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Only Jesus is the object of true worship and the one whose life we are to conform to. So yes, our our bodies will be like Christ in many ways, but we must not push that too far. How will Jesus transform our lowly bodies? According to the working of his powerful ability to subject all things to himself. 
In other words, by his power. So Jesus has the power to change his people, the bride of Christ, with all their imperfections into the pure and spotless bride. Furthermore, all of Christ's enemies will be subjected and crushed under his feet. Now, I don't have to tell you, you already know this, that we live in a world where things seem out of whack. But the day is coming in which Christ will put everything back in its proper place. There was a movie in the 90s called The Grand Canyon. And in this movie, this attorney was leaving a basketball game in L.A. And uh, he wanted to avoid the traffic jam, so he began to make a series of turns. And unfortunately, the turns took him into the deeper and deeper into this more dangerous part of L.A. And to top it off, his car breaks down. So he uh, calls a, a tow truck, but before it comes... Five young thugs show up, surround his disabled car, and are getting ready to beat him up. And just in time, the tow truck driver shows up, and uh, the the thugs are a little bit upset that this guy is interfering with their business here. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and gives him a five-sentence introduction into how the world works. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know this, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car here without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different from what it is here. So this tow truck driver's street theology is spot on. This ain't the way it's supposed to work, right? We're just not supposed to be getting sick. We're not supposed to be suffering. We're not supposed to be dying. But the time is coming in which everything will operate in just the way God intended it for it to be. There will will be no more natural disasters, tragedies, wrecks, stillborns, or any trouble with God's creation. No one will have cancer treatments at an early age. Everything will work just the way God intended for it to work. But in the meantime, the Philippians should stand firm. They don't need to compromise, nor do they need to back down in fear. Whatever dangers they face are no match for the ultimate victory of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So in order to live this way, the Philippians must pick their role models wisely, not based on popularity, athleticism, intellect, or charisma, but instead on godliness and closeness to which others follow the Christ pattern. Our world has these same challenges. Surrounded by consumerism and materialism, the continual theme of never enough, The values and priorities of the culture are always seeking to explore cracks in our life through the internet and through other means. And in the meantime, we are faced, we are always uh, tempted to compromise and soften the gospel and backpedal on our convictions. Jesus would have us stand firm so that we don't fall prey to the traps and snares of all these things around us. So our passage today gives us hope in two ways. First, There will be a day in which Jesus defeats all of his enemies by the power of the cross. You may see them getting away with things right now. You may think there is no justice, but the day is coming when Jesus will bring his perfect judgment. Second, the bodies that we have will be transformed. The pain you have, the old age you have, the memory challenges you're enduring, the sorrows you're surrounded by, all of these things are temporary. So if you knew that Jesus was coming back right after church, could you endure? Could you be faithful? Okay, I see some yeses. 
What about uh, if, if it wasn't today? What if it was tomorrow morning? If, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, could you endure and be faithful? Okay, I see some more yes. It's good, good. What if it was next week? Could you do it then? A few more, okay, okay. What if it was next month? I know it's a little bit longer, but could you do it then? Okay, okay. And what if it was next year? Could you hold out a whole year? Right, do you see where we're going with this? Christ is returning very soon. It, it may not look like exactly what we have in mind, but it's coming a lot sooner than we think. So one day at a time, following the Christ pattern, trusting in his grace, we can endure. So I'll end with this. What would it look like for you and I to follow the Christ pattern, to model our lives after the Lord who lived as a servant for our sake? Let's pray to that end. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are always encouraged by your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Christ pattern that he has set for us, this selfless servant who models so perfectly. Lord, I am so thankful today for godly men and women in this very congregation who live out that Christ pattern as well. Of all different ages and places in life, Lord, I thank you for each and every one of them. I pray that all of us can seek to imitate their examples and to be ourselves a Christ pattern. And for those here today, Lord, who are struggling with hope, I pray that they can look forward to that resurrection hope, to the transforming hope, and the, the anticipation of your return. Thank you again, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.